Okay, so we are going to talk about imagination and reason, um, something that I've been thinking about for a long time, and something which I write out in my... This is, this is the, the advertising part. Um, <laughs> So, rumors of a better country. Hold on, I just want to see if this this is for some reason not working. Pardon? You mean I need to turn Zoom on? Uh -huh. I turned it off. Do you need it or not? Well, then the people online will be able to see the PowerPoint. But it's okay, I've got the camera onto the thing. Okay. Normal services will be resumed as soon as possible. Mark, I like the cover. Okay, keep talking about the cover. <laughs> I like that. <coughs> keep talking about the. This is, this is very good. <laughs> is that okay then? I just have to get my stuff. Try and get that off there. Okay, here we go again. Right, available now <laughs> for pre-order, okay? And in this book, I, I talk about these two things as a part of a whole range of ideas, um, looking um, for some moral, in the awakening of the moral imagination, which I'm trying to do in the book. And in the book, I, I, um, I came to these ideas through... What I was what I was seeking to do um, when I was trying to understand things that I was hearing, both in Slovakia where I used to live and when we moved here, trying to um, discover <coughs> how to how to think clearly about the reality that I'm living in. And I, before I became a Christian, I was deeply um, influenced by the French existentialists. 
and their novels especially. Um, and it was very... Um, they were describing very clearly how I was feeling, how I was relating to the world. And then I got, through a series of strange incident, incidents, started to read the Bible. And I was reading the Bible, and it seemed to speak to something that was real. And I was surprised how unreligious it was in many places, and how it was speaking to something that was um, true to life, and spoke to the aspirations of my own thinking. So I'm torn between the existentialist vision of life and, and, and the Bible. So then when I, I got into kind of Christian activities and Christian church, I came across charismatic Christians on the one side who were very, very experiential, and then very rationalistic Christians on the other side who, who were all about thoughts and ideas. And I looked at that and I thought, well, how does that go together? Then I heard phrases like the heart and the, and the mind, or the head knowledge and heart knowledge and things like that. And, you know, I didn't really understand what, what people meant. I mean, I, I, I was in my head quite a lot, so I understood that bit, but I, I didn't fully understand what they meant by heart knowledge. Then I was starting in Slovakia. I wrote a paper which I first gave here in 19... Uh, 2000 2008, I think I gave it in Slovakia in 19-something or other. But it's called Cynicism and Romanticism and Other Ways We Avoid Reality, where the cynic suppresses um, the imaginative and the belief in the good and the, the romantic suppresses the belief in evil and makes life very rosy. And one is making a claim to omniscience, the cynic who says, I know what is real. The other is making a claim to omnipotence, I will create, I will build the real by my romantic endeavour. Um, and I saw um, in that a hyper-rationalism, a, a, a mind that's simply continually rationalising, rationalising everything until everything is rationalised away. And on the other side, an inflamed imagination of certain types of people who were in the church and who were insisting I feel certain types of things regardless of what I was actually feeling. So you had these two kinds of pulls. Um, <clears throat> and then I noticed, too, a change in the, in the type of questions people have been asking over the years. Twenty years ago, people would have been asking more, is this true? And if it's true, what should I do? And more recently, people are asking, is it real? So not only does it work, but is it somehow in line with reality? And I've noticed, too, the language we use changes, has, has changed. So whereas 15 years ago, people would have talked about the mind in our lunchtime discussions, nowadays people tend to talk about the brain showing something probably of a, a movement towards um, a naturalistic understanding of who we are. Um, and then people who will trust in something because of their experience and people who trust in something because of the rational answers it gives. And I've been trying to make sense of that. What, is it, what does it mean? And then I noticed something else. 
over in my reading of, of history and the history of ideas, um, and we're not going to go into that in a great deal now, but people of history sort of divided into the people who eat with knives and the people who eat with forks. But they never have a knife and a fork, or rarely have a knife and a fork. By that I mean the knives dissect and analyse, and the forks eat. But in our society, which is divided between the sciences and the humanities in universities, and in our general approach to life, um, you know, and the facts, and and the psychology of the modern transgender debate, the things are, are fragmented. And um, the knives are have a kind of edge, or have had a kind of edge for a very long time. So the sciences and the rationalists have been predominantly, for a very long time, the people we truly trust when we get to the world of ideas. And um, the artists, well, they're kind of creative and out there, but we don't have to take them too seriously. And that impinges on, on all sorts of questions of authority and questions of trust, and eventually on our objective and our subjective experience of life. Which of these is valid and how do we validate them? So all of that just to say how I came to um, be thinking about this. Um, and one of the points in my book, my book is an examination of the, using the Decalogue as a starting place to imagine what human life would be like um, if, we, if we submitted to it. And I, have, um, I noticed that the second commandment is about images. And images, don't, be, beware of the images you put into your mind and how you deal with them and the images that you make so that you don't bow down to them. And I've been meditating on that for many years now. What does that mean? And then the third commandment, which is about, I think, about language. Don't take the name in vain. God's name being the first name in the universe. And then all other names, so all other language, all other meaning coming from that first name. And I understand that using, using um, the Sermon on the Mount as my starting place, that God is um, allowing us, he's saying, it's not this big, it's this big. And we can take each of the commandments and expand them to understand them in their fullness like that. And I was thinking about the Decalogue when I noticed that the imagination came before the commandment on language. I thought, why is that? What, you know, surely if, if, if rationality and meaning are so important, it should be the other way around. The, the name in the first name of the universe, don't take the name in vain by the name, means don't hollow the name out, don't empty a bit of its meaning. Um, and here, um, here it comes before the, the, um, the, the images, comes before language and I was wondering what is that about is it possibly because we learn to see and feel before we learn to articulate and reason and, and communicate um, and the things that are laid down in us in our early life 
are often determinative of many things throughout our lives, many of the assumptions and, and so on. So first we, we observe and then we discover patterns and then we sort out which ones are real or not. Then we start to categorize, we start to articulate, and then we communicate. And I thought to myself, well, where do you see human beings? How do we know how human beings learn and grow? And I have been enormously privileged in the last four or five years to be at Labrie because we have had, it feels like hundreds, it's probably only 20, little children around, small ones from, from the ground up. And I've just observed them from, from zero to five or six. Um, dozens of <laughs> families, hordes of them at certain moments. And, that, and I've been looking at them and, and I said, well, asking myself, well, how do they, how do they learn to grow? I mean, they'll come up to me and they'll just stare. <laughs> then they'll run away. <laughs> then they'll come back and stare again. And you watch them and they're just trying something over and over again. And then once they've got it, they kind of do the next thing over and over again and it's a beautiful thing to watch and if you ever get the chance I, I thoroughly I've spent hours and hours and hours doing it and and it's been completely delightful and I want to show you a little video um, of a child in the act of discovery and a wonderful fatherly response now Peter who's in the video main secondary star not the main star assures me he is not always such a good father as he appears in this video. And I respectfully disagree, but that's, that's his business. He knows himself better than I know him. He said he would be very self-conscious, <laughs> and I'm saying this to make sure he is. And <laughs> but I do show it with his permission. And just want you to see how Matthias engages with his material see him discovering see him exploring and well and then we'll have a little comment afterwards hold on um for some reason the sound isn't working. So it is such good sound. I'm going to insist we take a couple of seconds to make that work. Pardon? Uh, do I? I'm asking. I don't think so. Let's show the Zoom. Yeah. And then if necessary, just unmute the HDMI. Okay, hold on. Uh, well, maybe you can turn the sound up from here too. It is quite loud. Okay. I'm leaving the meeting.
note. Yes, what are you doing? Are you drawing? Yeah. What are you drawing with, Tears? A rainbow. You're drawing a rainbow? Yeah. So what did you what did you get into here? My finger. Oh yeah. He's like a true artist. He just when he needs a bit more, he just puts his hand into the a pot of pseudo cream, which is for nappy rash. He just takes it out like a like a potter, or a, you know, or a painter using a, a thick kind of paint, and he just he just distributes it on his canvas, which is this little table in our living room. Yeah. Wow, very artistic. Yeah. While I was cleaning up the vomit from another child, I was dealing with that situation. And while I was doing that, Matthias was getting into the pseudo cream. Matthias, where did you find it? Did you find it? I asked him earlier, he said he found it on Nathaniel's bed. So, yeah, he found it from, from Nathaniel's changing station. And he thought, wow, this is a great medium. I like this texture. I like the color. I wonder how this would look smeared on me and on the table and who knows where else. Maybe it's time to wash it all off now, Tia, and clean it up, hey? What do you think? Yeah, let's have a look more closely at the archetype. Here we go. The artist at work. Yeah. Artist with his pseudo cream. <laughs> I guess the good thing is his hands are going to be very protected from nappy rash. <laughs> Unlikely to get red, painful swelling on his hands and his face. Yeah, and his face. Yeah. Oh, that was a nice kiss for the camera, Tias. Do you want to say hi, mommy? Mama. Mama, while you were in your tutorial, I found the pseudo cream. <laughs> yeah. Oh, need a bit more. Yeah, you got into the pseudo cream. Can I have that now? Oh, you just put it there. Okay, that's actually pretty good. All right. Now, now you got to come to the bathroom. Okay, we're going to go. We're gonna... <laughs> this is where we need to halt proceedings for the time being. I'm just. Even the greatest artists need to have some boundaries put on them. <laughs> okay. Okay, do you want to say bye-bye? Say, say bye-bye. So now we've got three, three canvases have been started, turning into a regular studio here. Okay. Tears, can you say goodbye? Goodbye. Okay.
the artist is, is kind of busy, so we, yeah, he can't look at the camera, he's a bit preoccupied with his work, but we'll go now. Goodbye, all. <laughs> that was worth the money just to come in, just to see that. But you see how he, he gets himself in, he's exploring. And he's, he's, he's experimenting, he's experiencing. And, and it's a beautiful thing to watch that childlikeness. Um, we've had so many children here, as I said. Um, they, they are infinitely curious. They feel, they touch, they stare, and they copy, and they mimic, and they continue to do it until they reach a level of mastery. And then they go from that to the next thing, the next level of mastery, building on the building blocks. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. I watch them, they look at me, and then they say, you're fat. <laughs> and they walk off. And sometimes if there's a mother there and she hears them, she says, no, 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 don't say that. And I say, no, they're just telling the truth. <laughs> they're just telling the truth as they see it, as they understand it. Now, if they're 15 and 16 and they're saying the same thing, then I would, then I would say, come on, <laughs> carry on, mother, do your thing. Um, but as a young child, they don't need, they have this natural ability to learn and to grow and absorb the world around them. And then they go to school, and, and, and somehow something in the methodology changes them. Um, so they ask questions, they experiment, they're ruthlessly honest, they discern truth, um, they, they have strong intuitions about falsehood, they ask for attention, they say, look at me, see me, I'm here. And, and that's an interesting thing, because Jesus said, uh, unless you turn and become like little like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so that's been in the back of my mind as I've been thinking. But then we, we, we move on and we, we learn to compare and compete. My dad is bigger than your dad. I can jump higher than you. Uh, we become envious. And comparison is the birth, birthplace of envy. Uh, we compare with God, and God is very big, and therefore we learn to we learn to hate the things that we compare ourselves to badly. We become suspicious, and life teaches us, unfortunately, to become suspicious. We learn to lie, we learn to uh, deceive other people, and in the process, we learn to deceive ourselves. And that I can deceive you is no great skill, but that I can deceive myself is astounding. When you think about it, we become blind and deaf to our, the view of ourselves that we don't want to see. We shut our eyes and think it's going to go away. We become dishonest. We distort reality. And we demand attention. And it's interesting to me that Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, 
they gave away childish, they gave up childish things. Just put those side by, by side. So the capacity to imagine and to, to reason is damaged by our interaction in a fallen society. We become fragmented. And it's those, those fragments that should be working together that get broken when we learn that life is not safe. We must protect ourselves. I don't pretend to know how the, the brain, the mind, works. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and neither should anyone else, apparently. <laughs> but it, how it's formed and how, and how it relates to the brain. But I've noticed, um, as I said before, more and more people are using the word brain instead of mind. And I'm not sure what that means, except, as I said before, that we're probably more materialistic and more naturalistic in our, in our worldview. But some of the capacities of the mind um, that we can imagine that we can um, empathize and envision something that is not, um, that we can remember. And our memory, of course, isn't of what happens, but of what our perspective was, what was laid down in our emotional life when the memory was happening, <coughs> that we can intuit, we can sort of generalize and, and pull out conclusions, some of which can be very right and some of which can be very wrong. And that we can, we can emote, have that energy within us that pulls us in specific directions. And that we can observe and listen and savour, as opposed to seeing and hearing and tasting, which are functions of the body. So that we can take that information and do something with it. And we're applying our experience and so on. So these are capacities of the mind and the body that we all have and they get distorted in all sorts of ways that I'm not going to go into. Um, what is the imagination? I've got a couple of things here. Oops, sorry. The capacity to visualize, to see things in your mind's eye, as it were, see things inside that you can't, don't necessarily see outside see reality through the images, through images that arouse strong experiences of wonder, joy, fear, anxiety, love, anger, envy. And these emotions supply the impulse and energy to engage in life. And without them, we would be passive and passionless. But our, emo our emotions should be appropriate to the task at hand if they're not going to be get out of control. So we have to draw them in. We have to give them guidance. So somewhere they have to have guidance to know where they should be focused. So emotions as opposed to feelings, which I want to separate out. So emotions are one thing, feelings are another. Of course you feel your emotions most of the time. But emotions are energies towards something. Uh, towards like anger is the energy we need to bring justice. Fear is the energy to, to be safe. So on and so forth. Um, that these energies need guidance and they need to be appropriate. So often 
if we don't watch and think about our emotions, our energies, they can be piled on top of each other and we can give one person too much that actually belongs somewhere else. You've all experienced that both as receivers and givers, I'm sure. Um, and so we have these, it's the capacity to visualize and it's the inventive capacity to visualize possibilities that don't yet exist. So I come to the river and I look and I think I could build a bridge there and that'll save me a 25-mile trip and a lot of other people a 25-mile trip. And so I can imagine what isn't. And so it's also something that helps me get outside of myself to the other, including to the transient. It's, it's the way out of my inside. The act of forming mental images of what is not present to the senses. So there's a few definitions of or ways to start to think about what the imagination is. But then we're also... Um, okay, sorry, let me carry on for that. We're reasonable people. We have rationality. A reason seeks to articulate what the imagination intuits. We are meaning makers. We, we seek to make sense of the world to ourselves and to those who are around us. So we're looking for ways. And that requires us to put things into language. We seek to order things so that we can live with them. And we seek to make sense of the world and of our experience. And why do, we, why do we do that? Why aren't we simply absolutely content with what's given, however good or bad it is, however pleasant or painful it is? But we're not. We are always reaching out. We seek to communicate with others. We need categories to do that and to make language work. And if you remember in Genesis chapter 2, God, having named the universe, in various ways, turns to Adam and says, now you name something, you name the animals. And then it's this amazing statement, it says, and whatever he called it, that is what it would be. That's not necessarily what it was, but it certainly was what it was to Adam. So when he's defining and he's giving language to these, these other, these micro parts of the, of the creation, he is given the authority over them, and whatever he called it, that is what it would be. Very strong language. We who love cricket or rugby um, make it in our image. We make it and we can change it. But we will never change the distance between the earth and the sun. So you've got the, the macro reality, which is fixed and, and and the micro-reality, if you like, which we have some sort of input into, and which we can change. And the difficulty is not knowing which bits are what. And that's part of the struggle of our modern life, is that some people say everything is socially constructed, other people say it's not. So is gender socially constructed, or is it fixed? And that's part of this big discussion that's going on at the moment. Um, but we think in sequence. So we're thinking A, B, C, D, and we can't do it in any other way. But we live life as a whole. 
So I may be thinking about the crowd of people who's standing in front of me, but I'm feeling all sorts of things. And I'm experiencing all sorts of things. I'm focusing on one thing, but experiencing lots of things at the same time. It's a wonderful gift, and it's a wonderful thing to do. But if you mistake your thought for your experience, you're going to get confused. And description of life is not the same thing as participation in life. And so some people who only work in the analytical um, sometimes mistake understanding for participation. The clearest example of that is when you go into the restaurant and you look at the menu and it's got this lovely picture of the food and you analyse the content. And then you eat the menu, but not the food. And some of us live our lives like that. We think that understanding a thing is the same as experiencing it. And they, we can use our rationalism as a hiding place just as much as a child hides in the imagination. Or an adult hides in the imagination. And drifts into fantasy whenever life gets too hard. Or drifts into theoretical thought when life gets too hard. So you've got these, these two um, ideas of rationality and, and imagination. And I just want to give you two lists here of, of um, the imagination and then of reason. Just characteristics. What do they do? And what are they like? So the imagination with its visual, its seeking expression... Uh, its images, its creativity, its curiosity, its participation, because the imagination arouses in us the emotional life with, with which we, the energy with which we participate. But it's intuitive, it's not uh, descriptive, uh, it's not prescriptive. It is an impression, it's a prejudgment. It's or you're, you're, you're sitting permanently in a data flow of all sorts of ideas and thoughts and, and pictures. And we live in an age of vast numbers of pictures and images that we are, which are used to, to inculcate us into all kinds of beliefs and practices. So the boxed sets of our television very often are telling us this is the sort of standard, this is what is allowed. And if you watch boxed set after boxed set you, uh, on the TV, you shouldn't be surprised if a whole generation is suddenly moved from one set of morality to another set. Because these boxed sets are incredibly powerful tools of propaganda. And they are so pleasant, which is why we just go from one to the other to the other in one evening. Uh, they are brilliantly made. But they are changing the way we think and what we value. And so with the pre-judgments that are pre-loaded into those box sets and, and are in many ways the way that we as human beings deal with a mass of information. I don't think prejudice is necessarily automatically wrong. It's only wrong when it's specified incorrectly. You can say, and as Paul, as Paul said, all Christians are liars. And, and 
rightly, the preacher will tell you, how would he know? Because if he asked a Christian, he might have lied to him when he told it. You, know, you, you get into these kind of endless loops of, of um, theoretical generalization is something that is generally a bit more true than it is false. But we, um, we use them because we, we can't go into every single encounter completely um, tabula rasa as an empty slate because life is too short for us to process everything in that sort of way. So we always bring a certain sense of, of, of judgment from our experience and from what we've read and from what we've seen. And the, and the wise person is one who will, who will say, well, this is my prejudice, and they will know what it is. Now is it true in this particular situation? And, and make sure that they are scrupulous in their, in their examination of themselves and their judgments. Um, and then reason, seeking understanding, trying to articulate, to verbalize, to categorize, to analyze, to map reality, um, using logic, which is as good as the, um, the premises that it started with and the data that comes to it, seeking proof, structure, form, systematized, critical thinking. These are the things we tend to think of when we think of reason and the imagination. But what happens when the two are kept apart? And that's um, briefly, when reason is the exclusive guide of reality, the result is a materialistic and a mechanistic universe devoid of meaning. When imagination is the primary guide of, of the result is a life of speculation and irrationality. It's a mistake to absolutize the relative or to create tension where there should be integration. The imagination frees the mind to explore possibilities and to move beyond personal experience. And the wise person uses both but trusts neither as ultimate. And if you... If you um, only rely on one or the other, how do you know what is real in any given circumstance? How do you work out what is real? If you use the imagination, if you use reason, you are trapped in the data of the sensory world. You have to be able to say, is there another way of seeing this to get a different perspective? You can do that by asking someone else, but you have to be able to establish a relationship and parameters to do that. So is there another way of seeing what I am seeing? Gets me beyond my own limited interpretation. And I've said already, we mistake the menu and the meal. If we only use reason, um, it quickly becomes um, a dead rationalism rather than some lived experience. And how do I test my prejudices? If I can't ask the kinds of questions like, is there another way of saying this? Is this person more than what the sum of my experiences? Is this person the, more than the sum of my projections? And how do I examine my assumptions? And these are the dangers of when you build a wall between, between the two. And then finally, what does it look like to put them together? I'm not 
saying I have no clue how internally this capacity to imagine and to go beyond and to think visually is related to our rationality. But I am saying that, that um, the size of the overlap isn't what I'm, I'm trying to get at. It's just symbolic of something. Perhaps it's good to think of the two as two sides of a coin. This is a part of the function of a mind that's working properly. Um, something that is supposed to cooperate, but which has been fragmented by the fall. And if you remember, what does, happens when Adam eats of the fruit? He loses his sense of location. God says to him, where are you, Adam? It's not because God doesn't know. It's because Adam doesn't know. Adam is hiding behind a tree, so he's lost his sense of proportion, as if he could hide from God. I was hiding. Who told you you were hiding? He becomes self-aware in a way which is unhelpful to him. Who told you you were naked? And no one told Adam, but he, he intuited it. He knew he was vulnerable. His imagination is now aflamed. And his reason is not holding him back and giving him perspective. He's not implying his rationality to think in terms of probability. So we get, by integration, we, we get awareness um, through the imagination by observing, but we get grounding and informing as our, as, as our imagination and as our reason cooperate. And we go from the pre-theoretical to the theoretical. We gain energy through the emotions. And a feeling is a bodily response to that, um, to what is happening to us. And the distinction between experience, when I am experiencing something and I step back, to theorize about it is really an important one because when I participate I can't necessarily understand what's going on. I step back to understand what's going on then I step forward to participate. And have you ever tried to analyze a joke whilst you were telling it? You can't do it. So you either enjoy the joke and then later on you say, well now why did I laugh at that? And maybe next time you laugh some more. But that stepping back and stepping forward is a dance, I think, that is important for us to make so that we do participate, that we do experience, but that we also understand what's happening. And um, my, own, my own experience of this um, was, was once, and I've told some of the students this recently, was in a, an art gallery in Vienna when I was, um, went with an artist friend of mine from Slovakia to see uh, Picasso. And he knew my background, my friend, not Picasso, he, my friend knew my background, he understand I was very, very analytical. And I'm standing there in front of this Picasso, it's about 19 rooms worth of Picassos, it's a huge exhibition from all over the world, they brought these paintings in. And I'm looking at this Picasso and I could not make head or tail of it. And I've, I've seen some Picassos that I've intuitively just been <gasps> amazing. But this one was just strange. And I was looking at it 
And my friend, who's an artist, trained artist, a graphic designer, uh, came up to me and he said, you're asking all the wrong questions. And he walked off. <laughs> What's, <laughs> how does he know what I'm doing? So I, 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 um, I went over to him and I said, what do you mean? He said, some things you have to experience before you can understand them. And then he walked off. So I went back to this huge painting. And I'm looking at it with my rationalistic set of questions about the genre type and the art type, the period of history and all the things that I've been using to analyze it. And I just stood before the painting and I allowed it to have its effect on me. And I saw a large paint stroke going from the floor all the way up and over to uh, the top and the arcing over the top of the picture, about that big. So it's a huge painting with a very big paintbrush. And he swept over. And as I, I in my body, I sort of did the, the stroke after him. And in a second, I saw it. Suddenly, it became clear to me what it was about. And the, I felt the anger with which he was painting, the energy with which he was painting it the violence with which he was painting it. And it suddenly made sense. And then I started to step back and think about it and apply all the questions. And the questions then were at a much deeper level because I had engaged with the affect. But for me, engaging with the affect is a frightening thing. Because when I was um, Matthias's age, or a little bit older, I drew some paintings on the wall. And when my father came home, he, he wasn't quite so gracious as, as, um, as Peter was. And, um, but he did like reading. And if you look in my library, you'll see I have lots and lots of books and only a few paintings. And I think something split inside me in that moment. I'm not just to blame my father. Things I, I put on the wall probably shouldn't have been there. Um, but we are all, in many different ways, torn and fragmented. We hide within our rationality or we hide within our imagination. And we need to let them join together to function as they're supposed to function and allow that to take us wherever it will take us. Um, there's a bit more I could say, but I'm not going to. I'm going to leave it there and let's take a few minutes to talk to the person next to you, as is our custom. And I'd like, to, I'd like you to say, what, what question does this arouse in me, this idea? Because it's very incomplete. There's lots more one could say. Um, and I've had terrible difficulty concentrating when preparing this all, all the, this week. So um, I'd like you to spend just a few minutes talking to your neighbor or in, in small groups and how do I deal with imagination? How do I do? Which is dominant to me? Which do I feel more comfortable with? What would it be like to arouse one or the other? What would it mean to integrate? Okay? A few minutes and then we'll have a bit of a discussion.
Okay, shall we gather our thoughts back together? <laughs> so, would someone like to um, say where their conversation went? The bits that are relevant to our evening, I mean. Yeah, I, I often say in, in when, when the student comes to the big front door for the very first time and, and knocks on it, and of course there's no one on the other side, cause, cause there's, um, and you have to push it open, 
and you're asking us, you know, it's like when you go to a conference or a meeting for the first time, you're, you're kind of, you're anxious because you don't know. And if you've got a fertile imagination, you're, you're, you're imagining what it might be like. And, and of course, I'm imagining on the other side of the door what it's like to have you come through it for a term. And, and, and are you going to be like so-and-so or such-and-such? We all remember so and so and such and such, don't we? And, and uh, uh, or are you going to be different? And, and the discipline it takes to say, I do not know this person until they reveal themselves to me. I mustn't impose my imagined, my experience onto them and say, This is you because you've got the same sort of accent or the same sort of nose or the same sort of who knows what. And, and it's, it's a discipline that, and, and to say, with my reason, I do not know. And the place of doubt, and in a society that doesn't allow you to doubt, how dangerous that is. Doubt must be trained to, to doubt and judgment. That's the way we get free from our prejudices, and we are able to examine them for what they are. So that's what you meant by, by having um, prejudice to some extent. Yes, yes. Yes, using my, my reason to, ma to, to yeah. analyze my judgments. Yeah, yeah. So, thank you. What, what, what else do we have? Well, it's interesting. I, I taught a Bible study this morning where we used our imagination. And often what modern rationalist Christians are taught to do is go to the Bible and extract the truth from the narrative and make propositions out of it. And there's nothing wrong with propositions. They're very helpful to clarify thought. But that's not where the truth is located. The truth is located in the story. So you, you can go to... The story means a great deal to me, the story of the woman who comes into the Pharisee's house. Um, and it's the story we were talking about this morning, some of us. And we, she's in the Pharisee's house, and you think, well, what on earth is she doing there? What courage it must take this, this sinful woman, whatever that means, to, to walk in there for the first place, knowing the scorn and the judgment. But she comes in and she anoints the feet of Jesus. With this, and, you, and a lot of the time, if you don't apply reason, you get sentimentality. And so, oh, isn't it sweet? She's anointing the, the feet of Jesus with this thing, crying over it and so on. Do you know how sensual that would be? For him? And she's a sinful woman. She knows she's a trained specialist in the arts. She would know. So she also knows what normal men's re reactions are. And yet she trusts him not to be like that. She trusts him for his self-discipline. Which I think is often missed because we don't apply the imagination to the story. 
we're just left with a, something that's a little bit sentimental, saccharine and sweet. But the eye and discipline of this man, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And he is demonstrating amazing self-control. You just wonder what would have happened if she'd have gone to the Pharisee. And she'd have mistaken him for Jesus. So that's the sort of thing I mean, so applying reason and, and imagination to the text. So what is actually happening here? And expanding through your imagination all the different possibilities. Think, what could it be like if? But then restraining that through your reason. But the, the, the story and the surrounding stories don't justify that. So you've got this great balance in using the imagination and reason. There's a sort of a, a push-pull going on. And so the reason is, is restraining the imagination from just being absolutely wild. Uh, and, and the imagination is pulling reason out of the uh, material world it needs to, to get its um, to function. Yeah. Do you think that's why Jesus taught stories, parables, a lot because of that? Well, I think the stories and the parables are full of emotion, and certainly that one is. And when you read them like that, you tend to remember them because they are, have emotional content. And so your visual memory and your emotion combine to make a stronger bond than if you've got simply um, categories of, 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 of thought that you can easily forget. And the categories of thought like, don't tend to ignite your emotional energy, which is one of the reasons why sometimes we are too passive. We go to church, we hear wonderfully glorious truths, and then we go to lunch. And that's the end of it. Rather than allowing the imagination to be on fire. So it motivates us to do things that we should do. Um, you seem to analyse, interestingly, um, is it something with the imagination side, feelings and emotions. I'm not quite sure I agree with that. I mean, you can analyse words till the cows come home. <laughs> Well, trying to escape from a fire or something, you just—I think the passions really come in. It's, it's, so you might rationally say, "I'll go through the work doors, they escape or something," but I think they are important in our in our lives. Absolutely, and I think I think um, the reason I separate out feeling from emotion is because I want to 
capture something in the emotion side. The E motion yeah. is the movement towards or away from. The E gives the sort of direction and the motion is the energy. So, and not all feelings are like that. Warm and, and cool don't move me to anything. They're just states of being. They're, feelings are, are responses, sensate responses to Your stimuli. Yes, touch, well, and, and no, not just, not just touch, but actual bodily feelings yeah. um, are responses to stimuli, either internal or external. So I might have a thought and I suddenly feel shame, for example. Or I might have a, a big donut in my hand and feel stuffed. <laughs> it doesn't actually move me too much. Um, but the emotions, I'm, and the way I'm using them, is, is they, are, they are moving me to a, with a purpose. And if I'm wise, I will use my reason to say, well, what is the emotion I am feeling? Now, sometimes, as you say, in a fire, um, the example I like to give is of the bull that's opposite the field in, in the house where I live, just over there. And, and I'm standing in the field. And the bull is just eating grass as they do. And then he turns around and looks at me. And I look down and I see my red coat. And I see the bull starting to go like this. <laughs> and I, you know, I have this something comes into my guts. And it's energy. It's anxiety. It's, it's a certain fear. And I have to say, is there anything to be afraid of? And I begin to see the bull starting to pick up speed across the field. And at a certain moment... I say, that's the danger, and the energy kicks in, and the adrenaline helps me to jump over the hedge, or through it, or whatever, it, <laughs> whatever I'm capable of. And, and so... I thought you said the danger. Ole, ole. That may be how they deal with things in Romania, but um, <laughs> I, I personally <laughs> tend, I mean, in the heat of the moment, you know... Um, and, and so, so, yeah, I, th I, think, I think we do, we, are we have trained responses too that we've been conditioned into. Sometimes we do the right thing and sometimes we, we do crazy things. So, We're, I mean, we, we know you wrote in our Tension Club, which was written in Crow, and it mm -hmm. Uh, probably now, yeah, but I think probably when he was using the word passions, he would have a more integrated understanding yeah. anyway. So, um, and, and by the way, I, when I'm talking about this, I think I'm talking about human life, not just Christian life. And it, all humans have, have passions oh, yeah. and intellect, so it's, it's, it's not um, something that's made special, particularly by our Christianity. It's just a human thing. Um, and I, yeah, I, th I think that um, the reason I use passion, uh, I use emotion and feeling, is because we tend to use either for both, and we don't really think about what we're saying when we use them. Anyway, it's just the uh in our eyes. But it's, I think emotions actually, once I've once I've made that distinction. I can actually start to apply my reason to my emotion. I say, is this emotion deserving in this particular place? 
or is there too much of it? Does some of it belong somewhere else? And that's helpful to me. And then it allows me to give lots of different feelings to certain emotions. So, for example, when I ask students here, what, emo what feelings do you associate with the word love? I almost always get feelings of romantic um, association of some sort. Whereas, um, how do you apply those to Jesus dying on the cross? But that would be the instinctive, intuitive response of people who said um, feelings of romantic um, affection, uh, arousal, are applied to the word love. But I, I, with my definition, I can have a very wide range of feelings, some of which may be very negative. Um, towards the word love, and they would be justly associated with it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I, think, I think that t two thoughts that are important to me. The first one is that God uses both our imagination and our reason to illuminate to us what is in the revelation. That's the first one. And discerning when it's God's illumination and when it's simply my imagination is, or, or my rationality is perhaps where I need to concentrate. The second one is that revelation as such is the way that all personal knowledge is communicated. So it shouldn't surprise us that God does the same thing. What, I, what do I mean by that? I mean that um, I don't know who you are. We've never met. I say, How, who are you? You tell me your name. I tell you mine, and we start this dance of opening ourselves up, giving each other information that is only possible to discover through each, uh, each of us being willing to reveal it. And so all knowledge of persons of, that has any meaning comes through revelation, which requires trust. We build up trust, we start to reveal more. We build up more trust, we start to reveal more. And that's what all human beings are doing all the time. So it shouldn't surprise us that a personal God uses the same method, the same means of, of, of illuminating to us what he thinks. And that we shouldn't think that it's all dependent on my rationality and my ability to, to think or my ability to imagine. In fact, it's way beyond my ability to imagine by definition because God is infinite and I'm finite. And should we not think it is almost a dangerous sort of reliance on imagination and reason, really? So the fact that I think you talked about earlier about the sort of us as we perceive the self perceived. Mm -hmm. Reason and character come together, or so. 
Well, through God's word you're talking about. But God isn't um, bypassing your faculties when he does it. He's using them. And so I, I wouldn't be afraid to have to experience illumination as that. And I would expect to see it resonating in, in God's uh, written revelation. Um, and that would be for me the confirmation. So in the Old Testament, you see the Old Testament law and in the New Testament, you're told this is a shadow of something else. And the shadow, of, it's the shadow, the two-dimensional expression of a three-dimensional reality. And the three-dimensional reality is Christ. And so we see in it um, something, we can look at the shadow and we can look at the reality and we can see how these things go together. And I think that's how, how, how the Bible is supposed to work in our lives. That we see in our experience the work of God. And we see in the Word how God works and who He is, and there should be some resonance. Um, that's what I'm looking for anyway. Um, and illumination, who can say how it happens? Peter walked with Jesus all those you know, three years and was experienced Him in operation. And he says in, in his letter, you know, He was full of grace and truth. Um, so he experienced him. And I would expect also, if my faith is true, that there would be times of that kind of experience and of opening up. But it, it would feel to me very much like I, I saw something through my imagination, my reason working with God's word. And it would be a divine event. And I think it probably goes on all the time and we hardly realise it. Yeah. The accusation of, and the things that just seem suspicious, 
This shouldn't be mistaken for innocence. That's what children have. They have innocence and it gets blown out of them by contact with the world, contact with the corruption of the world. And so they are protected. They're in a family and slowly their family circle grows bigger and bigger. And then they go outside of that. And then the, the sort of, depending on the kind of family, the, the contact with the rest of reality starts to, to go. And in a good family, there is a certain degree of protection. Um, and I, I wouldn't by any means want to say this is an exhaustive list. It's just the list I could think of in the time I gave to think about it. But <coughs> it seems to me that when you have contact with, with the painful reality of life, you have to make choices. And of course, young children aren't in a place to make those choices. So we tend to make them almost by default. Um, we get scared and so we withdraw. We don't go through a conscious process of saying, ah, oh, I'm scared, I'm going to withdraw. We just do it. We kind of, the snail goes back into his shell, you know. And to hold out the opportunity. And when you go into that side, it means you've already... Um, entered into some of the darkness and, and, and this is the world we live in and then we, we're torn from, from the reality of daily experience because you have every experience you have, you have in the present moment you can't have an experience in any other place and so we're torn away from that then in our thought world we're sort of saying I don't want to see that, we're going to denial this is not real it's too painful to be real, so we disassociate. And I think we do it much more readily than most of us realize. I mean, some people you see, that's what they've done. Other people, you know, someone said to me recently, we're all schizophrenics, it's only a matter of degrees. And, <laughs> you know, no one has a complete grasp on reality because wow, it's, it's overwhelming. And ultimately, God is the most real. And God is inviting us into reality. And we're saying, oh, this is scary. I don't want to do this. And that, you know, how many times have I been on the high diving board? Not recently, but <laughs> in the old days, the good old days, uh, and looked over the edge and oh, I didn't want to do it. I was too afraid. And, and what will happen if, because my imagination is, well, I won't know until I find out. I do it and sometimes you do have to do it uh, but to be able to say yeah I'm feeling this emotion and it's fear and actually it's not justified or I'm feeling this inflamed um, idea about say the demonic and it's not justified it's just something that's been imposed on me from the outside and, and there are a thousand examples and everybody's experiencing that every day and to be able to say I, I don't know and I'm not going to make any judgments and to stand in that position 
until I, I do have evidence. Yeah, that's a hard thing to do for an adult person. So we, we, we bail out into romanticism, which I call the imaginative, or into cynicism, which is the hyper, the hyper-rational. And we, we deny the dignity, we deny the, the depravity, and just pretend it's not there. Ultimately, Lenin and Hitler were romantic. They were determined to create worlds in their own image. And, and you see the unreality of it by its fruit. But then you turn to some other artist who, who um, goes with a disciplined approach towards life and says, yeah, it is painful, but I'm going to go through it and I'm going to use my imagine, imagination to imagine what I can change now and what I have to wait for. And you can, you can see fruit, but it's a different kind. And it will never be perfect. So idealism is dangerous then too, because our ideals get in the way of just living in the real world. And I think, I think the child who is just childlike needs to be especially um, strengthened in the area of critical thinking. So if I had to give my children one gift, it would be to think critically about anything, from the films they're watching, to the food they're eating, to the people they're meeting. And not judgmentally, but to think critically. How do I see the reality in this? How do I see the good in this? How do I see the bad in this? I think it was Os Guinness, I can't remember where I heard this from, but who used to give his children a penny for in any advert where they could, if they could spot the lie. And he would give them a penny, so I want to turn up it was worth something. Um, he would give them for every lie they could spot in any given advert. Well, I believe so, didn't you? <laughs> I, um, I'd like to thank you for showing that distinction that Paul made between the child and the childishness. Yeah. It has always confused me, but now I yeah. see clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay. Um, in terms of my question is about the integration of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, I, I don't know the full answer to that <laughs> um, in my own life, but what, one of the things I think about is, or observe, is when I hear speculation about motive or about another person's intent, uh, where you can always spot a cynic, is when you give them a fairly well-grounded piece of truth and see what they do with it. And if it, if it hits them and just slides off, as it sometimes does, you know this person isn't actually interacting with the world around them. They're just defending from the world around them. So that's on the rational side. But on the, on the irrational side, on the imaginative side, I'm looking for speculation. People who are saying, oh, he's always like this. He does this because of that. Well, how do you know he does that? You can't even judge your own motives, let alone someone else's. And none of us can judge our motives. They're, they're so... Con uh, 
difficult to see and spot and isolate. So if you see someone always saying, oh, he's this or she's that, um, or if you see someone who is speculating about, um, very imaginatively about you know, the sorts of, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the QAnon type phenomena in our present time. And I think we are living in a time of great split on this sort of thing where people can say preposterous things and be believed because then the, the populace is not used to critical thinking and basic epistemology. How do you know that's true? And even, and, and, uh, even approximating that, that might not be true because of such a... You, 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 what you, what's absent is any sense of testing. There's no sense of, well, how do you know that? Let's look at the evidence. And, of course, evidence can be concocted and all sorts of things. So I'm not saying that's a final thing either. We don't trust our reason and we don't trust our imagination. We trust in Christ, which brings us back to the idea of revelation. But uh, we... we we should be suspicious of anyone who, who refuses to, to think about evidence in any way or just says that's, or just continue. Have you ever tried to argue with someone who said um, NASA never dropped anyone, never landed anyone on the moon? <laughs> and, and you can go forever because you can't prove it unless you are there in the sense that they mean proving it. And all the people who were there are dead. And there are very few of them. So you couldn't, you couldn't, so you could go on forever. And the, the imagination is a powerful thing. And human beings are self-justifying. And we don't want to be wrong. I mean, who gets up in the morning and says, I am determined to be wrong today? Nobody. You get up and you think you're right. Otherwise, you wouldn't get up. And, and, so, and so, yeah, I, I think those are two two things I'm looking for, speculation, and is, are these people willing to ground their truth anywhere? Definitely. I mean, when I'm talking about them, I mean me too, obviously. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, well, I, I, think, I think partly they're right. Partly. And partly they're wrong. And the part that's right should be given its proper space. Um, if I say to you, um, it's true that we're all sitting in this room tonight, most of you, the vast majority of you, will agree with me. If I say to you that I'm feeling such and such, it's a truth that you don't have that I do have. So that's also true. And it's true for me, but it's not true for you. And so the truth is the truth that we all share, which is the facts of the matter, and, and the truth um, that is unique to us because we are unique people in the world. My personal interaction with Christ is very different probably than many of yours, uh, but it's still true. And yours is true too. In fact, part of the richness of life is when we, we can share in the meaning. So your meaning is unique to you, my meaning is unique to me. And part of the wonder of human interaction is when we can trust each other enough to reveal that meaning. Uh, and then when we do that, we, we grow in depth of our understanding and we can be properly and appropriately intimate. That's what that word means, being one with. Um, and rather than um, 
demanding that everyone is always the same because we're not. Is that, is that somehow... I mean, ultimately, reality wins. Reality is the brick wall you run into when your illusions just turn out to be that. Uh, and unfortunately, in the case of communism, it took 80 years in, 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 in the Soviet Union. And it takes a lifetime for many of us, for many of our illusions, to, uh, to get knocked out of us. But we all have, we all live with illusions and delusions and so on. Um, and it's a good friend who tells us the truth when they see it and tells it in love so we can hear it. Yeah. Well, I don't think necessarily, um, I, I don't think I have reached the full potential of my sinfulness. <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in, in that I haven't had all experiences happen to me, right. and neither have they, and they have had very few experiences oh. happen. So there, yes, the so potential is all there. Yes, I see. Born, yes. born in sin, but they are still innocent until they interact with the society around them. Yeah, because we're because that's how they're going to react. Well, I would love to. I think I've met it in Christians and non-Christians, yeah. um, and so I, I, I think, I, in order to understand the world, we sometimes have to read and see things we would prefer not to. It's part of loving your neighbour is you have to read the books your neighbour's reading to understand them properly. You will, you cannot go through life just preserving innocence. But you can go through life um, looking to God for your, as, as the example of, of, of one who, is, who has character in any given situation. Uh, when I look at something, some of the things I've had to read, I ask myself, what is, is this doing to me? 
is it titillating me or is it making me sad? If it's making me sad, I'll continue to read it. If it's, if it's titillating, if it's exciting me in some way, then I tend to stop. And that's my way of navigating the difficulties of being in a society that is bound to influence us in various ways. So that, that's, that's one way of preserving a certain degree. It's not innocent, but it's, it's um, a longing for um, clarity and purity. Um, I think Psalm 119 has a lot to say about this. I'm, I'm reading it at the moment. And he groans because of the, the sinfulness around him and in him. Uh, because the more he looks, the more he longs and sees the glory of the goodness of God, the more he also, that illuminates his own heart and he finds that difficult to look at. Um, anyway, I think we've probably come to an end. So, good to see you. See you next week. Yeah.